Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matt Kressel. I co-host the series with Ellen Datlow. We've been doing it for, well, the series itself has been running since the late 90s. And uh, it's always free, never a cover charge. And uh, all we ask is that you uh, buy a drink, hard or soft, and tip your bartenders who are working hard to keep you hydrated. Um, Also want to say big, huge, enormous thank you to everyone who donated to our fundraiser. So um, if you haven't heard, and you probably did because we were spamming you in social media this this past month, um, we raised about $9,700. And um, just just amazing. Like, so so we, we set the bar initially pretty low, um, just because if you know how Kickstarter works, they only give you um, the money if you if you you know if you reach the goal. So I'm like, all right, we'll we'll set the goal really low and see what happens. So we actually doubled what we asked for, uh, more, more than doubled, and that'll let us run for for about six more years. So uh, thank you to everyone who who, who donated. Um, thank you to all the uh, the backers. Thank you to the bar and just and thank you to the. Uh, the, the audience, the guests, like you guys who, who, who support the series and come and, and you know, keep this thing vibrant and going and thank you to the, to the guests who come and, and read for us and just really, it's just, um, we're really happy to keep this going, so thank you. Thanks very much. Oh, um, so because we, we, we made more than we thought, uh, we're able to, we give the authors a little stipend, and we're able to, to give them a little bit more. Uh, so just wanted to say thank you for that. Um, before I continue on, um, Cam, uh, a guest uh, and in the audience here, wants to uh, mention a fundraiser he's doing. So you want to? Uh, oh, yeah. Very briefly. Hello, everyone. Hi, I'm Cameron. I'm also one of the organizers of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writer. Cam is recent for this time. Hey. Oh, I'm not waiting for me. <laughs> I'm always waiting for you, Cam. And if, if they were to Google that, um, how would they find it? Well, the Kickstarter isn't up yet, but if you want to go to our actual podcast, it's yeah. kaleidocast.nyc. Kaleidocast.nyc. Yeah. Okay. Kaleido was an old? Yeah. 
Please spell it. Thank you, Cameron. Um, so I hope you all uh, support that. It sounds like really awesome. Um, I haven't actually got a chance to listen to the podcast, but I definitely want to. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of Kickstarters, but all for good causes. Um, before we continue on with our readers tonight, Sonny Moraine and Kat Valente, uh, just want to announce our upcoming readers. Next month, July 19th, Karen Hewler and Genevieve Valentine. <laughs> August 16th, Gregory Frost and Rajan Khanna. September 20th, Chris Sharp and Catherine Vaz. October 18th, Kaya Shante Wilson and James Patrick Kelly. November 15th, Grady Hendricks and David Rice. December 20th, N.K. Jemison and should I say who the other person might we be? We're not sure, but may maybe Nathan Ballingrid. And we know they're like write very different stuff, but we're like, okay, let's just see what happens. And you better stay for both of them. Yes, you, you shouldn't leave after the first reader. Um, also, we have always a uh, uh, Word bookstore in the back. It, uh, Word, can you wave? Yeah, there she is. Um, so just, we want to thank uh, Word Bookstore Brooklyn for uh, supporting the series for several years now. They always bring the author's books for sale. Uh, tonight, they have the refrigerator monologue monologues and um, singing with all my skin and bone. So, uh, at the break, go ahead, buy a copy, bring it up to the office, get it signed. Our first reader is Sonny Moraine. Sonny Moraine's short fiction has appeared in Clark's World Tour.com, Nightmare, Lightspeed, and multiple years' best anthologies, among other places. They are also responsible for the Root Code and Casting the Bones trilogies in their debut short fiction collection, Singing with All My Skin and Bone, is available from Undertow Publications. In addition to time spent authoring, Sonny is a doctoral candidate in sociology and a sometime college instructor. They unfortunately live outside Washington, D.C. in a creepy house with two cats and a very long-suffering husband. Here's Sonny Moraine. here. Okay, um, I'm going to do two short stories. Uh, the first one actually just came out on tour.com. And it, what's kind of cool about this is it's actually about girls in refrigerators. So we kind of have a theme going. Uh, and then the second one is actually the uh, title story from my fiction collection, Singing with All My Skin and Bone, available in the back. And it is a story I've actually never read aloud. So we'll see how that goes. So first, Eyes I dare not meet in dreams. The staring, a leaf alone in the horrible leaves. The dead girl, the staring. Joshua Beckman, the dead girl by the beautiful Bartlett. At 2.25 a.m. on a quiet Friday night on a deserted country road in southeastern Pennsylvania, the first dead girl climbed out of her refrigerator. So the story goes. We never saw the refrigerators. Eventually, we gathered that they were everywhere, but we never actually saw them until the dead girls started climbing out of them. Holes in reality, some people said. 
Interdimensional portals, real Star Trek shit. There's a tear between these parallel universes and something falls through. And next thing you know, there is a refrigerator in the middle of the road or the sidewalk or someone's lawn or a football field or in the bottom of a dry swimming pool or on the seventh floor balcony of a five-star hotel, on the steps of a museum, basically anywhere. Later, watching a shaky video taken on someone's phone of a refrigerator on a long straight line of train tracks. Train not far, nighttime, lights blinding. The blare of the thing sends the sound into an angry buzz of distortion. The fridge, just lying there on its side like a coffin. You can't even tell what it is, except that it's a box, or something like that. It opens, kicked. Out climbs a broken doll girl, hair stringy and wet, head lolling to one side. Can't see her face. Don't need to see her face to know that she's fucking terrifying. The train somehow looks terrified, but physics is a thing, even now, and it can't stop. She stands there, broken doll head on a broken doll neck. And over the heavy buzz, you hear someone screaming, holy fucking shit, holy shit, holy shit. Even filmed on a shitty cell phone, a train derailed by a dead girl is quite a thing to see. Okay, the official story goes that the first dead girl stood on that deserted country road on that quiet Friday night for quite some time. She stood motionless, listening to the pat-pat sound of her own blood dripping onto the blacktop. Not listening for her heartbeat, which was not there, nor for her breathing, which was not there either. She was listening to other things, wind, leaves, owls, fox scream, sighing of distant cars. It was a quiet night. That's the story. The story goes that the dead girl palmed blood out of her eyes and looked down at her sticky fingers, as if considering them carefully, in their context, in their implications, in the slick undeniability of what was still flowing out of her, like inside her was a blood reservoir which would take thousands of years to run dry, like she was a thing made only to bleed. And the story also goes that at some point, after studying the fact of her blood to her own satisfaction, the dead girl dropped her hands to her sides and started to walk. We never would have believed, before the dead girl started climbing out of the refrigerators, that people could be literally resurrected by sheer indignation. Probably it should have been obvious. People have been brought back to life by far more ludicrous means and for far more ridiculous reasons. The story also goes that no one saw the first of the dead girls. The story goes that when they came, they came quietly, unannounced, no particular fanfare. The dead girls did not, then, demand witnesses. They weren't interested in that. They wanted something else. Later, the dead girls were emerging everywhere, but the first dead girls climbed out of the dark, out of the shadows, out of the lost places and the hidden places and the places of abandonment, out of the places in which one discards old, useless refrigerators out of the places in which one discards things which have served their purpose and are no longer needed. The dead girls climbed into the light in junkyards, in vacant lots, and the jumble of shit behind ancient disreputable institutions one might kindly call antique stores. The dead girls climbed out in ravines and ditches, and on lonely beaches and in dry riverbeds, wet riverbeds. The dead girls climbed into f out into feet and fathoms of water. The dead girls climbed into the air, but they also clawed their way out of long-deposited sediments and new mud, like zombies and vampires tearing their way out of graves. The dead girls swam, swam as far as they needed to, and broke the surface like broken doll mermaids. That's how the story goes. But the story also goes that no one was present at the time, in the first days, so no one is entirely sure how the story got to be there at all, or at least how it got to be something everyone accepts as truth, which they do. First CNN interview with a dead girl. She's young, small, blonde. 
Before she was a dead girl, she was definitely pretty, and she's still pretty, but in the way only dead girls are, which is the kind of pretty that repels instead of attracts, because pretty like that gives you the distinct impression that it hates you and everything you stand for. Dangerous pretty, and not in the kind of dangerous pretty that exists ultimately only to make itself less dangerous. Dangerous pretty like a carrying goddess. You've seen that pretty picking over battlefields and pursuing traitors across continents. You've seen that pretty getting ready to fuck your shit up. Small, young, blonde, pretty dead girl, broken doll. She stands facing the camera with her head tilted slightly to one side. Her face is cut, though not badly. Neat little hole in her brow. The back of her head is a bloody, crusted mess. It was fast what made this girl a dead girl, but it wasn't pretty. But she is. Looking at the camera, it's somewhat cliche to say that someone is looking right into you, but that's what this is like. The eyes of the dead girl aren't cloudy with decay, or white and opaque, or black oil slicks. The eyes of the dead girls are clear and hard like diamond bolts, and they stab you. They stab you over and over, slowly, carefully, very precisely. Can you tell us your name? The dead girl stares. Anderson Cooper looks nervous. Can you tell us anything about yourself? Where did you come from? The dead girl stares. Can you tell us anything about what's going on here today? Behind the dead girl and Anderson Cooper, a long line of dead girls is filing slowly out of the mid-Manhattan library, where approximately 1,500 refrigerators just came into material existence. The dead girl stares. Is there anything at all you'd like to tell us? Anything. The dead girl stares. She actually doesn't even seem to register that there's a camera, that there's Anderson Cooper, that she's being asked questions. It's not that she's oblivious to everything, or even to anything. She's not a zombie. Look into that diamond point stare and you see the most terrifying kind of intelligence possible. The intelligence of someone who understands what happened, who understands what was done to them, who understands everything perfectly, perfectly like the keen of the edge of a razor blade. She's aware, she just doesn't register, because to her it isn't noteworthy. She doesn't care. Can you tell us what you want? The dead girl smiles. What they didn't seem to want, at least initially, was to hurt people. The train thing freaked everyone out when it hit, but later, as far as anyone was able to determine, it hadn't been done with any particular malicious intent. Mostly because the only other times anything like it happened were times when a dead girl needed to act fast in order to keep from being, well, dead again. Dead girls wreaked havoc when they felt like someone or something was coming at them. So don't come at a dead girl. Easy lesson learned quickly. Dead girls have itchy trigger fingers. They hit back hard. You shouldn't need to ask about the reasons for that. Something like this, people struggle to find a name for it. The appearing, the coming, the materializations, all proper nouns, all vaguely religious in nature, because how else was this going to go? By naming something, we bring it under control, or we think we do. All those stories about summoning and binding magical creatures with their names. But something like this resists naming, not because of how big it is, but because of the sense that some profound and fundamental order is being altered. Something somewhere is being turned upside down. The most basic elements of the stories we told ourselves about everything, a lot of them no longer apply. A bunch of dead girls got together and decided to break some rules with their own dead bodies. So the mediums of all the media looked at this thing, whatever the fuck it was, and they tried to attach names to it. Dead girls on the street, just standing, watching people. Dead girls in bars, in the center of the place, silent. Dead girls on the bus, on the train, they never pay the fare. Dead girls at baseball games, just standing there in front of the places selling overpriced hot dogs and bad beer, heads slightly cocked, looking at things. 
None of them have tickets. Dead girls at the movies, at the opera. Dead girls drifting through art galleries and libraries. Very early on, a mass migration of dead girls to LA. Not all together, they went via a variety of transportation methods. Flew, again, trains. Some went by bus. Some took cars, took them, because again, you don't go up against a dead girl. Some, as near as anyone was able to tell, just walked. Steady, inexorable. The news covered it because the dead girls were still always news in those days. And while even news made up of a wildly diverse collection of media and organizations usually adopts a specific tone for something and sticks to it, the tone for this coverage was profoundly confused. Watching dead girls standing in the aisle of a jumbo jet, refusing to be seated, staring, interrupting the progress of wheelie carts and access to the tail end restrooms. The specific dead girl is missing half her face. Blood oozes from the gaping horror. Flight attendants don't look directly at her, and one of them gets on the PA and apologizes in a slightly shaking voice. There will be no beverage service on this flight. Cut to the ground below. 24 dead girls have run into a biker gang and confiscated their vehicles. They roar down a red desert road in loose formation, hair of all colors and lengths pulled by the hands of the wind. They're beautiful, all these dead girls. They're gorgeous. They take, whatever the they take whatever name anyone tries to give this and they hurl it off the tracks like that train. You get the sense they're pretty sick of this shit. That's the thing, actually. There are exceptions, girls with horrific traumatic injuries, girls missing limbs, girls who were clearly burned alive. A lot of those last. But for the most part, the flesh of the dead girls tends to be undamaged except for small evidences of what did them in. And there's always something about those things which is oddly delicate, tasteful aesthetically pleasing. As a rule, dead girls tend to leave pretty corpses. Dead girls outside movie studios, the headquarters of TV networks, the houses of well-known writers, assembled in bloody masses, broken dolls with their heads cocked to one side, staring. People were unable to leave their homes. This is how it was. Footage constant, even though nothing changed. People started throwing around words like zombie apocalypse, but no one got chomped on. The dead girls don't want the flesh of the living. Initially, the police tried to clear them out. Then the National Guard. Casualties were heavy. One of them, a girl with long, lovely brown hair gone reddish with blood, threw a tank. So people basically stopped after that. What was this going to turn into? One of those old horror films about giant radioactive ants? More contemporary ones about giant robots and sea monsters? Maybe we weren't ready to go quite that far. Maybe you look into the eyes of a dead girl and it feels like your options dry up and all you can do is be looked at. You were part of this. We all were. Complicit. Look at yourself with their eyes, and you can't help but see that. <coughs> Except on a long enough time frame, everything has a half-life. Even the dead. You don't get used to something like this. It isn't a matter of getting used to. You incorporate. Dead girls everywhere. Dead girls on the street. Dead girls on public transportation. Staring at phones and tablets, reading over shoulders. Dead girls in Starbucks. Dead girls on sitcoms. No one has ever really made a concerted effort to keep them out of movie and TV studios after a few incidents where people tried, and again, the casualty count wasn't negligible. Dead girls on law and order, and not in the way that phrase usually applies. And man, there are a whole fuck of a lot of dead girls on law and order. Dead girls in the latest Avengers movie. Rumor has it dead girls surrounded Joss Whedon's house three months ago and haven't left, and have decisively resisted, have decisively resisted all attempts to have them removed. Dead girls vintage filtered on Instagram. Dead girls on Tumblr. Dead girls everywhere on Tumblr. Dead girl fandom. There's a fiercely celebratory aspect to it. 
Dead Girl Gift Sets with Taylor Swift lyrics. Dead Girl Thick. <laughs> Vicarious revenge fantasies that don't even have to be confined to the realm of fantasy anymore, because again, Joss Whedon. And he's by no means the only one. Dead girls as patron saints, as battle standards. Not everyone is afraid of the dead girls. Not everyone meets that hard, dead gaze and looks away. Some people meet that gaze and see something they've been waiting for their entire lives. So in all of this, there's a question, and it's what happens next. Because in corporation, because almost everyone is uncomfortable, but discomfort fades with familiarity, and after a while, even fandom tends to lose interest and wander away. Because we forget things. Because the dead girls are still and silent, constant witnesses, and that was unsettling, but actually they might turn out to be easier to ignore than we thought, or that prospect is there. In whispers, people consider the idea, could all the pretty dead girls climb back into their refrigerators and go away? Is that something that could happen? It seems vanishingly unlikely. Everyone is still more than a little freaked out, but it is an idea, and it's starting to float around. We can get used to a lot. It's happened before. A deserted country road in southeastern Pennsylvania, deserted except for a dead girl. Quiet night, silent night except for her blood pat patting softly onto the pavement. Palming it out of her eyes, staring at her slick, sticky fingers, dropping her hand limp to her side. A dead girl stands motionless, looking at nothing. There's nothing to consider, nothing to do. The entire world is a stacked deck, and the only card she can play is that she's dead. That might or might not be enough. The dead girl starts to walk. Point of interest, sorry, point of interest. I, that came up on tour.com like last week. Within an hour, there was somebody posting a comment like, what about all the dead men? <laughs> I fucking swear. It was like they had somebody watching. It was amazing. Lives matter. <laughs> oh my god, okay. <laughs> All right. This is the story that, again, is the title of my fiction collection, title story of my fiction collection, and that I have never worked up the courage to read aloud, partly because it is probably the most intensely personal story I've ever had published, if not the most intensely personal story I've ever written. So we'll see how this goes. I'm telling you this so you know. I don't remember when I started eating myself. You should remember something like that. It should be a moment, one of those you carry around forever, a line that you cut across your life to mark before, when everything was one way, and after, when everything was different. I don't remember discovering it like a secret formula or an equation that explained the universe. I don't remember discovering it at all. I'm not sure it was discovery. I think maybe it was something that grew, that asserted itself, learning without meaning to learn, like walking or speech. You're made of things you can take to pieces, and those pieces can be eaten. The truth is that you're made of meat. I do remember what I did with it, when I realized there was something to be done. I remember that very well. There's a world with someone in it, and a world without them. It happens right in front of you that's sort of hard to miss. I carry these things around with me. I've been trying to say them for years, so if you don't mind, there are all kinds of things you don't hear. What you need to understand is that this kind of magic persists because it works. It doesn't work in large ways, in obvious ways. It's not showy, and it's not out to impress anyone. This kind of magic is like a path through the night or tunnels beneath an occupied city, supply lines for resistance and the movement of agents. 
This kind of magic is the slender, fragile reclamation of power. When it's done right, no one notices it's there. I've gotten very good at hiding it, but I was very clumsy then, and even if it, if it worked, people saw too much of it, and that blunted its power. It takes years of practice to know just how to destroy yourself, just how much to pick away, just how much to gnaw off, just how much to cut. What you need to understand is that I can't change anything. I couldn't protect myself then, and I can't now. What you need to understand is that this has never been about anything but the sheer pleasure of survival. Here's what might have been the moment. It could have been any way, any time, somewhere between the number five and the number nine. It could have happened like this. There's a healing scratch. The unevenness, unevenness of it is pleasant, and the realization that fingernails slide so very neatly under its surface. It takes almost nothing to pull it away, and the blood wells up like liquid garnets, and it's so pretty. And there's something that washes over you then, like slipping into a warm bath, and your breath comes easier, and you sag against everything. And it comes to you that there's power in this, because just as you slip down, you slip sideways, and you see things you didn't see before. There are bones under the world, and now they're in front of you, and they rattle and dance. Grasses are deep jungles, streams are mighty rivers. Here is the broken ground by a creek, and it's a massive gorge through which that river flows. Everything small is abruptly enormous and dramatic, and you can lose yourself in it. The sky flips sideways. Gods lurk in the branches and concrete and in all the machines, and polished stones whisper stories from when their melted hearts cooled, and they tell you everything they learned from their shaping rivers. You see everything that might be. You see the filthy, churning story factories. You see the eyes in the storm drains. Fuck your city beneath the city bullshit, your vampire private detectives and your werewolves tending bar, because I've seen it. You dig and dig, and suddenly there's a hole in you through which your spirit pours. You eat of your own flesh and drink of your own blood, and it's the deepest kind of communion. And if they see you, they wait until after school, until you're ten minutes from home and they pelt you with stones. What you found can't protect you, but it seems like it just might be worth it. So there was that day when he followed me home from school, backed me into a corner of the afternoon, using his chest like a battering ram, pulled back and ready to break through. Put yourself here. See. It's amazing how everyone just disappears at moments like that. Crowded neighborhood full of kids headed toward home, but then the part of space you occupy is sealed off, and it's just you and him, and you're bargaining, begging, dragging down the sleeves of your shirt, remembering that he came after you on the playground and feigned a kick to make you flinch, and that he laughed and leered in your face, that you looked up at him and thought about the scabs on you like dinosaur scales. You thought about peeling it all away and revealing claws and pebbled lizard skin, and you thought about tearing his belly open with your toes and spilling his guts on the blacktop and screaming at the overcast sky while everyone else took their turn to run, and the useless lunch monitors vomited against the walls of the gym. Just a note, that was a spell that never worked. I did try. Don't think for a second that I didn't try. Even magic spun from torn flesh has its limits. You make bargains in moments like that. I think we've all been there. For weeks, trying a variety of ways home, creeping along like a deer headed for water, eyes and ears and tail pricked. Never the same way two days in a row, but he found me, and I didn't understand exactly why it was so terrifying being alone and small in that blocked off space with him, but I offered him secrets. Never mind what they were. Secrets are powerful. That's one thing I'm sure as hell not telling you. He wasn't the only one, the first or the last, and when I talk about him, I'm talking about them all, some of whom I remember, and many of whom I've forgotten but I've never forgotten what he said. That's not enough. Let's leave him for a moment. Let's take some inventory. Match heads work well. 
Just blow them out, press them against the inside of your arm. It's exquisite, but you don't get the satisfaction of beating on the burns until after they've scabbed over. There's a pulse in the world, and you can watch it spread outward from those red glowing spots, encasing you in a translucent shell. It never lasts, but it's better than nothing. Unfolded paper clips work wonderfully, more slowly. The face, of a wounded, the face of a wound parts like a smile and drools blood in clear plasma. And in that wor world only you can see, it steams like incense offered to a god. Gods respond to that kind of offering, and they gather silks and beautifully dyed wool around your heart. Clippers for nails, cuticles, these are delicate tools. A little too delicate and also a little too easy, because no magic ever comes without effort. They can make openings, beginnings, but then other things have to take over. No needles or knives. They are too sharp, too clean. The best tools for this kind of work have edges that are ever so slightly blunted, that require commitment to use. Of course, fingernails are the best. They're always the best, ever present and reliable. The claws I was born with, even if they aren't the claws I wanted. I'm telling you this so you know, but I'm not expecting you to be able to use this information. I can reach through this membrane and touch you, but I don't think you can really touch me. These are only scars to you, and all you ever saw was a strange little child who walked like a ghost through the world, looking for something without having the slightest idea what it was. More and less real both at once by virtue of spilled blood. Ghosts don't bleed. I do. They used to burn witches, didn't they? There's something about skin, something supernatural. Not to say that it's magic or ghostly, though it is both of those things, or that it contains a power in and of itself, and that power magnifies when removed from a body, though it does. Skin is supernatural in that it connects, like a thin tendon, to everything part of, but also above the natural. Skin is cells, hair, sweat, the potential of blood. Skin is, skin is, skin is sensation, an experience of what it is. Skin is a lightning spark network of a sensory organ, inexplicable, and yet not at all. Remove skin and see what's beneath, see how it all fits together. Understand the structure of something when that structure breaks down and follow its slashing power lines to their source. I spun my first magic from the stuff of what I was, torn away because I could spare it. But I began because, like all of us, I had something I was trying to get away from. Then I found other reasons. Let me tell you what I wish I could have said when they saw the blood and the pits in my flesh and tried to get me to stop, because everyone knows little kids shouldn't do this shit to themselves. Let me tell you that when you discover a direct line into the fabric of the universe, it's very difficult to just leave that alone. Let me tell you what it's like to wear every mark like a secret ornament that only you find lovely, and to hate them at the same time because of what they'll mean to everyone else, so you hide them as best you can with long sleeves and shadows, but they always see in the end. Let me tell you what it's like to make blood magic, real magic, because packed under your fingernails, the world loses its power to hurt you anymore. Let me tell you what it's like to run through a complex refinement process that makes it chocolate and warm sheets and dappled summer sunlight. Let me tell you what it's like to select your instruments of sorcery according to their sharpness and keen edges. Let me tell you what it's like to be a witch in junior high school. Let me tell you, shut up and let me talk. I wish I could get this into words. None of them are coming out quite right. I wanna tell you what it's like to have magic in your skin. Sit down beside me and let me illuminate all my scars. Let me tell you all my many early names. No, they weren't bestowed like honorable titles, and they hurt worse than the actual wounds, but they dug into me just like everything else, and I have them still. Not all scars are the kinds you can see. Not all scars are beautiful. A changing body is a dangerous thing. A body that can be changed is more dangerous still. All these little bodies, all this potential, 
And imagine if they all found out how to take hold of it all at once, every single beaten down body rising in angry flames. God, we would have been terrifying. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine that? There's a reason why we send children off to war. That's not enough. Okay, motherfucker, I'm enough. You know what? I'm enough. I'm the baddest bitch around. There's razor wire in my blood. I can clap my hands and summon an army of, rab army of ravenous corpses from the cracks in the pavement. I can throw my tennis shoes over the telephone wires and turn them into a murder of hungry crows. I can spread my hands and break the world open, release 100,000-eyed seraphs to see your soul to ruins. I have a wolf's bite. I have a pack at my heels. My daughters were harpies and furies. My sisters were the Morrigan. My daughter will be fucking Kali. My grandmother's burned, but saw me to birth in centuries of ash, and it doesn't matter that I always run away, and it doesn't matter that I'm trying to drive a devil's bargain with a grunting, sweating fifth grader, and it doesn't matter that you made me cry all those times before because you think I'm not enough, you piece of shit. I can roll up my sleeves and tear off my skin and make you fucking cease to exist. That could have happened. It could have. I'm telling you this so you know. What I won't tell you is whether or not they ever found him. I won't tell you if it happened all at once or little by little, slowly enough for him to scream as he lost his limbs, his heart, his tongue. I won't tell you whether I cried at what was happening or just watched and passive or whether I laughed and clapped my hands. I certainly won't tell you whether or not I ran away. I certainly won't tell you if I bargained in the end. I won't tell you if it all failed, if I can only look back and rage, if I'm just lying to myself even now and all I have left is stories and those lies and where my feet could take me. We're always making bargains is the thing. We forget them, but they happen. Secrets for life, flesh for power, blood for knowing. No one had to teach me these things. I learned them from being in the world. But even if you don't ask for something like that, it has a price. I don't curse crops. I don't cause children to be born sickly or deformed. I don't bring, pl bring plagues of rats. I've never stolen the breath of a baby while it slept. I can't travel in chill night winds. I can't give you a potion to catch the heart of your true love. I can't read the stars, and I have no idea what's going to happen next. There are all kinds of things I can't do. I count my marks and take stock of my little magic, my flesh and blood magic, and I think I only have so much of both to give. And I've given a lot to get this far, but I'm still here. And I'm telling you this so you know. copies out there, she will sign them, or they will sign them, so please do bring them over to Sunny. And we're we'll going to take about a 10-minute break, and we will be back then. And uh, the bar does not, there's never a cover charge, but the bar would love you to buy a drink, either alcohol or not, to support it. And thank you very, very much, and we'll be back in about 10 minutes. Hi, everybody. Hi there. Welcome back to the second half of our reading presentation. Before we start, I actually have a couple of things to give away. I'm always trying to get rid of things from my apartment. <laughs> but I have, um, I, have the, I have a brand new, this is just out, um, Mapping the Interior by Stephen Graham Jones, novella from Tor.com. And I, I'm trying to figure, we're trying to, he asked, Matt said, ask trivia questions. Like, okay, sure. All right, all right, whoever, name 
And do not Google. Do not use your fucking machine and phones. Just name another, a not, name a book by Stephen Graham Jones. All right, who said it first? All right, you get it. Pass it down. Sorry, okay. And then I have um, an arc of Haunted Nights, a Horror Writers Association anthology that's not coming out until October, edited by myself and by Lisa Morton. So these are uh, originally, they're Halloween stories. They didn't want to put Halloween in the cover because they figured they'd have a broader, I don't know, broader appeal if it was like just haunted kind of stuff. Um, anyway, so someone name one of my science fiction anthologies. Alien sex. Alien sex. Who, you got it? You got it? Okay. It's all yours. If you want me to sign a Kathy, I will. Or I will. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Maybe I'll do this every month and I give her more books. <laughs> but um, I know I could, couldn't I? But yeah. But I, yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, Catherine M. Valente is a New York Times best-selling author of over thirty books of fiction and poetry, including Palimpsest. The Orphan's Tales series, Deathless, Radiance, and the Refrigerator Monologues, which is just out, and the crowdfunded phenomenon, The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland and a Ship of Her Own Making, and the four books that followed it. She is the winner of the Andre Norton, the Tip Tree, Prix Imaginal, UG Foster Memorial Award, Mythiopaic Riesling, or Riesling, I guess Riesling. Lambda, Locus, Romantic Times, Hugo Awards, and has also just won the Theodore Sturgeon Award. She has been a finalist for the Nebula and World Fantasy Awards. She lives on an island off the main of Maine, uh, <laughs> off, the, off the main of Maine, off the coast of Maine with her partner, who is here, <clears throat> two dogs and three cats and six chickens and a small army of tulips. Please welcome Catherine M. Valente. Hello, everyone. Um, it's awesome to be back. I haven't read at KGB in so long. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the refrigerator monologues to continue our uh, cold storage theme evening. <laughs> uh, it just came out two weeks ago. Uh, it's more or less the vagina monologues for superheroes' girlfriends. Um, a significant por portion of it takes place in the underworld, uh, where all of these ladies can meet. Uh, I don't think you need anything more than that. The moon never sets and the dark never fades in dead town. The clock on the wall says 5 p.m. and that means one thing in this neighborhood. A voice as warm and rich as the head on a chocolate stout pours down from the speaker. You're listening to DPR, Dead Town Public Radio, the voice of the underworld. That was quarter-inch bleed with their hit, Cyan Eyes Make Cyanide. And now ghosts and gargoyles, dames and demons, boys and beasts, spirits dire and kindly sit back and let your favorite rag and bones girl cart your cares away. It's time for Daisy Chain, the talk of dead town with your dear departed host, Daisy Green. Daisy smiles against my shoulder. It's her voice, it's her show. She likes to listen to herself in a crowd seeing them listening, seeing them care so fucking much what she has to say. Being in two places is no problem in dead town. Her echo is down at the studio wearing huge headphones and making love to a mic while she drinks with us. Down here, people remember her from the movies, but they only mention the really arty ones. Down here, 
Her voice is always the best it ever was on some perfect day after a good night's sleep, no cigarettes in a week, and a quart of honey in her tea. Down here, it's always her best show. Hello, dead town, my darling. You look wonderful tonight, just as beautiful as the day we met. I've been thinking a lot about rules lately, about karma, I guess, even though most people just viciously abuse that word. They don't give one spangly fuck about the wheel of becoming and unbecoming. They just want to rub themselves raw against the idea that bad things only happen to bad people. Samsara is just something they name their cat. But the longer I'm dead, the more I think the universe is a big blackboard with rules scrawled all over it in chalk and stardust. And it's just that the damn thing is flipped over and turned away from us so we can't see anything but the eraser, which is death, hitting the floor. Write out your life 1,000 times, kid. It'll have to come back and finish tomorrow. Deadtown, maybe it's time to spill my very specific and personal beans into your soup bowl. Maybe it's time to answer those questions you're all far too polite to ask. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to okay people. Bad things happen to everyone. Good things happen to, well, somebody, probably. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere else. But I think I figured out one of the rules on the other side of that great squeaky cosmological blackboard. It's not a big rule. No need to carve it in clay tablets with a fiery finger and proclaim it from any kind of mount. It wouldn't even make the macrocosm top 10. But it's there, I think. Crammed in at the bottom, just under, light is both a particle and a wave, but above, don't cut in line. Are you ready? Here it is. Daisy Green's zero-sum law of luck. Luck is a finite and rare substance in the universe, like palladium or cobalt. To use it, you have to take it from somebody else. I'm pretty sure Misha Malinov stole my luck. He didn't mean to. They never mean to do anything in the beginning. But a superhero is like a black hole. They bend everything around them without even thinking about it. And they'd better be lucky as a goddamn leprechaun wearing a rabbit foot coat on lottery day. Or they'll never get through one single fight with a D-list villain. So they just suck it up from everyone around them. Trust me, kiss one hero and the coin will never land your way again for the rest of your life. And all that shit, all that horror, they can leap in a single bound. All that shit has to land somewhere. I had a little luck, for a little while. Not born a Kennedy luck, or cash out your stocks in 1928, but something small, something all my own I could fold up and keep at the bottom of my sock drawer. My dad moved us from Lewiston, Maine, to Brighton Beach when I was six, so I'd never have to save up enough on my own to move to New York. My mother was in a terrible car crash when I was a baby, but she lived. She only has a little limp. You barely notice. I was born looking the way most people secretly figure a real American girl should look. Blonde, blue-eyed, good figure, nice teeth, no major allergies or crippling anxieties. A good mind for math and a flair for performing. I've played Juliet more times than you want to know about. Directors look at me and think, that's just the kind of girl you fall in love with the minute you see her at your parents' garbage party and kill yourself over a week later. <laughs> I drew good cards from a stacked deck, and I played them well. Until I met Misha Malinov. 
You know him as Mikey Miller, the insomniac, the Coney Island crusader, working class warrior, and skee-ball champion of the world. But when my dad buckled me in next to a shy, worried-looking 10-year-old boy on the cyclone at Luna Park, his name was Misha Malinov, and he hadn't slept in six years. He only spoke a little English, and he had these big brown eyes like the kind of liquor grandfathers drink, and he was way luckier than me. You have to be if you get yourself born in a place called Pripyat in 1982 and you think it'd be pretty sweet to see the 90s. His parents worked at the nuclear plant right up until it decided to ship molten poison into the Ukrainian forest and make sure everyone would remember its name forever. They died trying to save the machinery. By the time his aunt and uncle brought him to America, Misha knew something was very wrong with him, even if he didn't know what. By the time we rode the cyclone together, Miasma was already coming through to our world on a semi-regular schedule. We didn't date in high school or anything. I recognized him at the start of sixth grade, Mikey, not Misha, thank you, miss, sitting in the front row, flinching at Mrs. Kendrick moved too quickly, drawing in his notebook in a way that looked like he was taking notes. But I had my own thing going back then, and that's how I kept my luck as long as I did. He saw me play Juliet for the first time, and Mary Magdalene, and Ophelia, and Laura in Glass Menagerie, and Emily from Our Town, high school drama's greatest hits. He always came. He waited until after curtain call to tell me I was wonderful. And that was it. Mikey, not Misha, got nervous around people, and the longer he had to be around someone, the more nervous he got, until he looked like he was gonna shake apart right in front of you, and you'd see that he'd been just a bunch of little kids in a trench coat all along. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, that old story. Pretty popular girl doesn't pay attention to the shy boy who loves her film at 11. But he didn't give anyone a chance to get close. He was trying to save us from day one. If he talked for someone for too long, Miasma would come after them. But I didn't know that then. I went out to Hollywood, Mikey Miller went to law school, I got an Apple commercial and then a recurring role on the latest iteration of gorgeous white teens inventing problems for themselves, a show that can never be canceled, only renamed. <laughs> the lead actor took off my glasses in the Christmas episode and discovered I was beautiful. <laughs> After we cut for the day, he locked me in his trailer and wouldn't leave until I blew him. Whatever, it's not like I hadn't read a book about Hollywood in my life, nothing unexpected. I flew home for the holidays, ate turkey and ham, went out for beers with the prodigal gang of returning collegiate conquerors. Beers turned into martinis, martinis turned into shots, and I ended up back in Mikey Miller's dorm room in the city, fucking like it was the end of the world. When I came, I saw sunflowers opening in my mind, yellow and red as summer. He wouldn't let me stay over. He looked so sorry and miserable as he pushed me out the door. It stung. It always stings when there's this whole story going on and you're really just a B-plot walk-on who only got a look at three pages of the script. When I deplaned in LA, I'd been written off to make room for an exciting new accidental murder storyline. My character had, been, had jetted off to Denmark as an exchange student. Fucking Denmark. Was that how it started? One night with Misha Malinov and you lose your oldest dream. I thought I'd bounce back. I booked a dog food commercial. A spring catalog, sang a jingle for a car insurance company, and that was it. L.A. went dry as last chance gulch for me. After all, in California, every girl looks like me. 
We're a clone army of former Juliets with peroxide pistols on our hips. Money ran out and I was honorably discharged from the ranks. I moved home to sort my shit out and well, Misha's new practice needed a secretary. I needed rent. I'm not too proud to file and make coffee, but it stung. Juliet doesn't answer phones for eight hours a day. Ophelia might. <laughs> Laura definitely. We fell back into old patterns, Brooklyn and homework and sunflowers, but he still never let me stay over. When my friends back in California asked what I was up to, I said I'd moved to Denmark. <laughs> I stayed late at the office one night in December. It's funny, the case seemed so important then, but now I can't remember one single thing about it. Nobody versus no one. Briefs and affidavits and depositions, oh my. I didn't see him come in, but you never do. I just looked up from my cup of toxic waste dump coffee and my sanity went down for a nap. This thing towered over me, just staring with those eyes like holes punched through to hell. Seven, eight feet tall, wearing a brown leather duster and a plague doctor's mask with glass gas mask goggles bolted onto it. The beak was so long it covered his chest and there was nothing inside the mask, nothing. Just blackness and heat and the absolute certainty that nothing you could possibly do in this world had any meaning at all. Miasma, in the flesh as much as he ever is. Miasma reached out for me, his hand was all bone and then it was straw and then it was my father's hand and Misha's. Then the electric lights of Luna Park and the cyclone twisted into fingers, a palm, a fist, and I was falling into the lights, down into the midway and the wooden roller coaster slats and the game with those little plastic horses lurching ahead on the big green board, stopping, shuddering forward again. The plastic jockeys turned to leer at me. Their faces came alive, my father, my mother, my agent, laughing and laughing, the handsome monster who took off my glasses for the world to see. Romeo, Hamlet, George from Grover's Corners, Tom Wingfield screaming about opium dens, and Mikey Miller. Poor, kind Misha Malinov. One by one, they caught fire, and the fire was sickly black. I screamed. I screamed like a girl in a movie. I always hated that scream. I thought, nobody really screams like that. But in the pinch, I was as good as any final girl drenched in corn syrup blood. Plastic jockey Mika, Misha broke free of the pack and roared off the electric board, growing bigger and bigger as I screamed. He wasn't plastic anymore. He was real and alive and kicking the absolute shit out of the Halloween costume that had come to kill me. I never had any idea he could move like that. Maybe nobody can move like that. When Miasma and the insomniac get down to business, you can't actually tell what's happening. Misha drove his fist through the thing's chest and dragged something out, not a heart, but a wriggling, writhing mass of black-violet nightworms that hissed into smoke in his hand. The leather duster and the plague doctor's mask collapsed instantly. The lights of Luna Park went out in my head. The midway vanished. The slats of the cyclone blew away, and we were standing in the office again. I dropped my coffee, and Misha caught it. And loyal listeners, thus began the happiest days of my life. Mikey Miller explained everything since that terrible day when Chernobyl bled out and his parents died. Mikhail Dmitrievich Malinov had not slept for one solitary second. And it seemed in losing this, he'd gotten everything else imaginable. He told me what he could do, and it sounded like a little boy's Christmas list. 
Dear Santa, I've been very good this year. You can ask anybody, they will tell you how good I am. I would like teleportation, super strength, the ability to travel through other people's dreams, heightened senses, and if my sweat could also make regular humans absolutely fucking trip balls, that would be awesome. <laughs> oh, and also, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, love, MM. Can you look into my dreams? I said shyly. I expected him to say no, actually, like the power of love kept my secrets safe. But he nodded. Okay, then. I remembered the sunflowers opening in my mind. That sweat thing is a fucking curveball, even in the superpower lineup. Have you? His face did the oddest thing. It's like it, he was trying to look ashamed and embarrassed, but fell over and landed smack in the middle of kind of pretty proud. And he nodded, yes, again. I went a little cold inside and said, don't. It's not fair. You kept your secret from me for all these years. I get to keep some from now on. But in all that teleporting and hitchhiking into the dream swamps of the greater burrows, he'd brought something back with him. He couldn't remember when he first dreamed about the man in the plague mask. It might have been all the way back in Ukraine, in Pripyat. It came for him covered in radioactive slime in his mother's blood, staring through that medieval face and industrial eyes at a helpless child, whispering the same thing over and over, you will never belong anywhere. Everywhere you go will die. Year by year, that thing got stronger, got bigger and more solid, could stay in the real world longer, and hated Misha Malinov more. Whenever Misha so much as looked at someone for too long, Miasma would begin to stalk them, invade their mind, tearing them apart to find out what had drawn Misha's attention. But lately, the creature had gone freelance, walking the streets alone, feeding on human hope and longing and, well, not to put too fine a point on it, blood, meat. Misha became a hero not to fight some nebulous idea of crime, but to fight the monster of his childhood nightmare, the insomniac, hero of the wee hours. But it's okay now, I said. You killed him. I saw you pull out his nasty worm heart. It's over now, baby. It's done. Misha sighed. The insomniac walked over to the pile of leather still lying on the floor where Miasma had disintegrated. He picked up the long bone mask in one hand and walked past my desk into his office. He waved me over to the supply closet with a big, half-dead fern in front of it and opened the door. Inside, hundreds of plague doctor masks hung on the walls in neat, identical rows. Miasma is a bad dream, he said. You can wake up all you want. He comes back the next night just the same. And that's the truth. Some of you out there probably know the score firsthand. The insomniac hunted Miasma every night, and every night he ripped out that thing's ultraviolet heart, and every night the creature turned up again fresh as laundry. But Misha was so happy after that. He didn't have to hide from everyone. He had somebody who knew him, who could really see him, who would clap her hands instead of freaking the fuck out when he shivered and wrinkled along the edges like something you see out of the corner of your eye when you haven't slept for a week and teleported across the office. And for a while, it was good. For a while, it was thrilling. For a while, I was part of something so fantastic and unusual and big and secret. I knew something no one else knew. I felt special, like my superpower was loving him. For a while, for a while it was like we were starring in simulcast TV shows. 
By day, mild-mannered Mr. Miller toils nobly in the halls of the American justice system with a little help from his girl Friday. But the real work begins at night. The insomniac guards his sleeping city, the paladin of Luna Park, keeping the world of dreams safe for all mankind. And then there was the Daisy Show. By day, the adorable Daisy Green performs intellectually stultifying secretarial duties and watches her youth slough off of her into a filthy coffee pot. But by night, she shreds her soul to pieces, worrying and waiting for her big strong man to come home from a hard night's labor. Will he come back dead or not dead this week? Stay tuned. The only life in my life lay in the crossover episodes. View their staunch moral fiber, their witty banter, their modestly separate beds. When he came home, when he told me how it had all gone down out there, when he ate whatever bullshit I'd baked to pass the time in the fear like it was the only food he'd ever seen, when he lay next to me after all those sunflowers stopped blossoming in my head and told me how beautiful I'd looked on television. He watched all my episodes. He was so happy, I made him happy. But all the while I was disappearing, drinking from two cracked cups every night, one marked terror and one marked boredom. I couldn't relax, I gave him every ounce of my will, just don't die, just don't die. I stopped sleeping too, but it didn't give me superpowers. You can't sleep when someone you love is maybe dying, maybe drowning in the East River, maybe bleeding out in the meatpacking district, maybe vanished back into whatever hell dream vomited miasma out in the first place. He always came home right at the moment when I knew in my heart that this time he was definitely dead. I know you're listening, Paige. Hear me when I say it's not so nice to be the girl waiting in the window. Most of the time you just want to chuck yourself out. My hair started to fall out. I got a Xanax prescription I didn't tell him about. That worked for a while. I could laugh again. Flash a prescription strength smile. Boy, I was living the Betty Friedan dream. A roast in every pot and anxiety pills in every stomach. I was disappearing into his life. I only came alive when he was around to look at me and pay attention to me and fill me in at the edges. That's the sad truth of poor stupid Juliet's life. If she'd lived, she'd have gone to see that priest anyway to float her out of the crush of wifehood on a sweet opiate sigh. And I wasn't even anybody's wife. Days went by when the only person I saw was Misha. It started to look forward to miasma showing up and drop kicking me into a hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic ball pit of the mind. At least that was interesting. How is life in Denmark, Daisy? Is it all mermaids and pastries and free health care? Oh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And then my parents died. Plane crash. They got bumped off their flight to Paris for dad's endocrinology conference, but managed to snag a first class upgrade on another airline. I imagine they rushed across JFK to make it, giggling like kids and toasting when they buckled in, thrilled with their good fortune. Then boom, splash, sunk to the bottom of the sea. And everything after that was just bad dreams. I left. I loved Misha, but I left. Canceled the Daisy show, my Xanax prescription, and my broadband, and lit the fuck out. Didn't have the cash to get back to California. Didn't have the cash for much of anything but a suitcase and a bus ticket south. Guignol City was a pretty hopping theater scene, and most importantly, it wasn't New York, it wasn't Brooklyn, and it wasn't Denmark. Here we go. This is the story I know you want to hear. The one you've all been nice enough to never ask me about. My origin story. 
When you're as lucky as Misha, when the monster under your bed never gets you once, when the girl you loved from afar loves you back, loves you enough to become set dressing in your big, splashy, high-budget drama, it has to come from somewhere. And Misha's luck came from everyone around him. He was a vampire of luck. His parents back in Ukraine, my parents toasting with airline champagne, his clients, his college roommate Jimmy Keeler who lost his scholarship, his girlfriend, his sobriety, and me. I landed on my feet in California, working, hustling, doors opening, footlights shining. It was easy, like high school. But Guignol City laughs at the Juliet Army and puts out cigarettes on their tits. I couldn't get hired to twirl a sign outside a cell phone store, let alone legit acting work. I crashed on my friend Alexandra's couch. She played nurse to my Juliet then and now. We went to clubs together every night, my nurse and I, dressed up in our best neon and rain. The clubs where casting scouts were rumored to gather, hunting them like bird watchers, chasing reports of a rare emerald-crested plover, and with about as much luck. Men bought me drinks, but no one wanted to buy me, except in the most obvious way. But hey, Occam's razor, right? Sometimes the most obvious solution is the best. I remember my first time. He wasn't too bad looking, and he didn't pretend he was producing a gritty new police procedural or anything. Just lonely and frumpy and awkward and shy, which in Guignol City makes you a lamb already half slaughtered. Said his name was Charlie. Told him mine was Delilah. Couldn't resist a little literary flair. He had a loft with this huge skylight. I could see the moon and all the pink and purple and green lights of the seedy street signs rippling below like an aurora borealis. Charlie kissed me and kissed me, and what do you know? I was on stage again. I was the prettiest, guy, prettiest girl this guy was ever going to fuck. I'd star in his fantasies forever. By the lights of Guignol City, I gave the performance of a lifetime. All the great horrors of the stage animated my body. Cleopatra, Salome, Sally Bowles, Mary Magdalene, Fontaine, Helen of motherfucking Troy. I gave them all to Charlie, my audience of one, my biggest fan, at least for a few minutes. No sunflowers flared yellow or red in my brain, but Charlie's eyes became the cameras I'd been chasing all my life. When he finished, I stretched up, kissed his eyelids, and whispered, I love you. My curtain call, my bow before a red curtain, roses flying, applause shaking the chandeliers, and for a moment it was even true. I loved all of them for a moment or two, every man I ever fucked. I am a professional. I felt Ophelia's obsession and Laura's need, and I felt the love I gave. He whispered back, my real name is Joe. It's a ridiculous superpower, the smallest of the small, but they always told me their real names. That was the first and last time I let a customer fall asleep in my arms. He paid me a hundred bucks and boiled me a very sentimental egg for breakfast. I think if I'd wanted to, I could have stayed and Joe would have married me by Thursday. But I never saw him again. I took my money down to the Malfi Diner and ordered myself a disgustingly huge, greasy Salisbury steak, waffles with strawberries and whipped cream, a tower of potato latkes and applesauce, a bucket of lamb vindaloo, and a peanut butter milkshake. I ate every bite. It tasted like a future. It tasted like life. I didn't feel ashamed. I didn't feel the urge to run to the nearest confessional and barf up my soul onto some poor, unsuspecting padre. The Daisy Show was back on in a new time slot with an all-new cast. And after each and every very special episode, I said, 
I love you. Even if he hit me or choked me a little too hard or called me his wife's name or called me a fucking cunt whore or broke three of my fingers for no fucking reason, what the hell? <laughs> I love you. I love you. A real actress never falters. She gives the audience what they came for and love is all anyone comes for. I stayed on with Alexandra, but now I paid half the rent and graduated from couch crashing to bedroom burrowing. We had an Alex and Daisy movie night every Tuesday, shine or rain. That was one of her phrases. Alex hated cliches, but she knew her whole life was one, really, so she settled for a little word shuffling and dated a call. Misha phoned every week. I said I was fine. Audition after audition, darling, you wouldn't believe it. No, no visits from you-know-who. Think he's lost interest in little old me. One night I caught me an honest-to-God emerald-crested plover, a casting director, Arcolino Films, real name Frank. He liked being scolded. He liked my hair. He liked the fading bruise on my ribs. When I finished punishing him, he told me to come down to the studio in the Medici Quarter and he'd pay me two grand to do my act on camera. Well, why not? Maybe my luck was coming back peeking out at me from behind this balding, freckled man who liked being called a disappointment while he jerked himself off, who liked to watch. It's not like my parents could get mad. And thus, Delilah Daredevil was born. There you have it, Dead Town, the definitive answer. Where have I seen that girl before? Where have I heard that dulcet voice? You've seen me on my knees. You've heard me moan. You know me from the movies just not the kind that win Oscars. Becoming a porn star is pretty much exactly like becoming a superhero. One day, an intrepid, fresh-faced young woman discovers that she has a talent. She chooses a new name, something over-the-top, flamboyant, a little arrogant with a tinge of the epic. Somebody makes her a costume, skin-tight, revealing, a flattering color, nothing much left to the imagination. She explores her power, learns a specialty move or two, sweats her way through a training montage, throwing out punny quips here, there, and everywhere. She inhabits an archetype. She takes every blow that comes her way like she doesn't even feel it. Then she goes out into the big, bad night and saves the world from loneliness, from the assorted villainies that plague the common man, from despair and bad dreams, from tedium. Oh, sure, her victories are short-lived, she finishes off her foes in one glorious masterstroke, but the minute she's gone, all the wickedness and darkness of the scheming, teeming world comes rushing back in. But when you need her, here she comes to save the day, doing it for truth, justice, and the American way. At least that's how it felt at first. I felt like I understood Misha, finally, in a way I never could before. I like to think I could have called him up and exchanged stories with him, tips, techniques. Finally, we both had a secret identity, a by day and a by night. Sometimes I even dialed a digit or two of his phone number before deciding that a good Russian Orthodox boy probably wouldn't see the wonderful symmetry in our stories. I even wore a mask. It was my signature, a little dark red domino mask with red rhinestones at the corners of my eyes and long ribbons that rippled over my breasts or down my back like blood. Very Commedia dell'arte. Everything old is new again, and everything new is a fetish. I was finally where I wanted to be, at the center of attention, watched by thousands of adoring eyes, the camera firmly on me. My co-stars were cheerful, uncomplaining, and interchangeable, boy Fridays waiting for me to come. 
repeatable Romeos, too like the lightning which doth cease to be, ere one can say it lightens. And in the beginning, everyone treated me like Elizabeth goddamn Taylor. I lost my virginity in the opening of Delilah Daredevil, seduced the president in Delilah Deep, wore a toga for at least the first five minutes of Delilah Daredevil versus Nero's fiddle, brought <laughs> Satan to his knees in The Devil in Miss Dare, went up against the spirit world in Ghost Blusters, got to find out what it's like to kiss a lot of girls in Delilah Daredevil versus the Amazon women of Planet XXX. <laughs> Even got to wear wings in a corset in A Midsummer Night's Delilah and say one full line of actual Shakespeare. Okay, it was masters spread yourselves, but still. It was a world of yes. All my movies got sequels, all my lights were green. Delilah Daredevil does Detroit. Delilah Daredevil does Damascus. Delilah Daredevil does the Danube. And eventually, inevitably, Delilah Daredevil does Denmark. But becoming a porn star is pretty much exactly like becoming a superhero. You start strong, bursting out of nowhere, a bird, a plane, your name on a million needy lips, your name in the papers, your name up in lights, your greatest hits on constant repeat. You're the fantasy, someone so strong and beautiful nothing can hurt them, not even the worst shit anyone can imagine. In the first flush of it all, you're so convinced of the rightness of your mission statement, you practically glow when the bad guy's final spasm stains your mask. The camera loves you. It just feels good to throw down. You do it for fun, just to feel your own strength. When you're new, everyone's so fucking impressed with your skill and style. All these roaring, power-drunk men line up just to go one round with you. You blow them all down like paper dolls to rave reviews in the key to the red light district. But time passes, and it hurts more than you let on. You bandage yourself after hours alone in a phone booth with filthy windows, wrapping your wounds tight so you can keep fighting the good fight day after day. You get tired now. You get jaded. You get older. And after a while, they begin to despise you. It's not interesting for you to come out on top every time, to watch your Saturday night marquee smile pop flash at the end of every climactic scene. You need to keep up, keep up your numbers. You need to keep those eyeballs transfixed, Miss Thing. It's not enough to just work on your craft. You gotta keep up with the times, appeal to modern sensibilities. You have to do something more extreme, darker, grittier, more real. You need to be cut down a little. Let him see you vulnerable. Let him see you bleed. So no more cheerful super whore, Ginyal City's girl with a heart of gold and a twinkle in her eye. That's last year's hotness and it's this year's time to burn. Delilah Daredevil name doesn't move copies anymore, but Daisy Green still needs to pay her landlord, and once the world's seen what you can do, you can't squeeze your way back into, into normal life. People recognize you. They avert their eyes. They whisper, didn't our barista save Manhattan? Didn't she battle the Amazon women of Planet XXX? Didn't she take three guys at once with a writing bit in her mouth? <laughs> yes, she did, cats and kittens, and she wasn't ashamed of any tiny bit of it until they decided it would be hot to make her ashamed. Misha stopped calling every week, every fortnight, then every month. I told myself it wasn't because he'd seen my recent work, though I'd certainly seen his. He joined some superpower frat called the Union. They destroyed an underwater lair and got to speak at the UN. Misha gave the commencement address at Harvard. My whole life was just a little rummaging backstage while sets changed for his. 
so much wonder in his world, siphoned from the gas tanks of we bitter few, dying by inches so he can do the impossible over and over again. Luck is a zero-sum game. There's only so much to go around. Sometimes I read his Victoria's headlines and thought, was that a part I didn't get? My parents having a wonderful time in Paris and bringing me back a crappy miniature Eiffel Tower. Delilah Daredevil does legitimate theater. What dribbled out of me that blossomed into glory for him? Or did I just fuck it up myself? I turned on the Xanax fire hose again. That worked for a while. I could laugh, flash my prescription strength smile. But come on, you know how this story goes. It's the same word, it's always been the same word, one hiding inside the other. I am a heroine after all. The first time was with Alexandra, Alex and Daisy's Tuesday movie night. We'd rented the action-packed black and white Wuthering Heights because we are who we are and Alex and me were never anything but high school girls blacked out on daydreams, misreading psychosis for love. As the child of many earnest federal drug education programs, I thought the first time I shot up would be dramatic. Ominous music, swooning, air thick with tension, will she or won't she? Surely the world closes in on a girl making this momentous decision. The spotlight comes on for a real Hamlet-esque soliloquy on the nature of oblivion and self the self-destructive impulses of man. But I popped a Xanax. Alex asked, it if, asked if I wanted something stronger. Kathy Earnshaw perished beautifully on our rabbit-eared TV. Alex tied me off and whispered, Prince sweet, night good. She slid the needle in like Sleeping Beauty's spindle, and for the first time in a year, sunflowers opened up in my mind, yellow and red as summer. The rest is silence. Silence and then a cough I couldn't shake, then red marks on my skin like angry kisses, like spotlights, like the actual terrible, unforfucking-givable cliche that I was. Oh, the Daisy Show was such a hack fest, a product of its times, heavy-handed, preachy, full of bullshit, moralizing, and fucking Christ, what a predictable finale. What is this after-school special horse shit? the kind of thing some asshole in Ohio gets a National Book Award for writing while he screws his grad students and cries his way to tenure. <laughs> My boyfriend took all the magic and left me with nothing but the dregs of realism. The Misha Malinov show was always the primetime attraction. I'm just some public access embarrassment. I died in a free clinic in the left armpit of Ginyal City, and you know exactly what killed me, so just nod piously and spare me the humiliation of stitching on my scarlet A. Someone who didn't know me at all grabbed a dress at Goodwill and put me in the ground at the public's expense. Finally, government funding for the arts. <laughs> the worst part of dying is that you never get to find out the end of the story. Did the insomniac finally defeat miasma? Fucked if I know, I didn't get that script. I was just a deep, dark past, the battery of sadness hidden in the hero's heart. I was Rosalind, for fuck's sake. Juliet will show up in a scene or two and teach the torches to burn bright or whatever, and I'd hate her, but let's be real, ladies and gentlemen, he'll suck her dry too, and we'll all meet her for tea down here at the Lethe Cafe. The play is still going. It's booked every night until the sun goes out. I'm just the local theater ghost. And that's that, my darlings. The two hours traffic upon our stage complete with fatal loins. Not bad, really. Maybe I'll make it into a one-woman show. 
And you know, I am glad that we know each other now, really know each other. Companion bosoms from the heart of my bottom. Delilah Daredevil does dare, dead town. I love you. My dear departed, I love you so. I'll take the first caller on line one. Buy the book back there and get it signed. What was that? I hope there wasn't anything of mine. Um, thank you for coming. Um, you don't have to leave this minute. Hang out, buy another drink, pick up whatever you dropped, and see you next month. <laughs> thank you again. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.